Fantastic. Uh, so I was looking through my notes this week, as I customly do when I am preparing to speak, and uh, it occurred to me that I hadn't actually spoken on the pra- parable of the prodigal son for 10 years. Whoa. Yeah, how crazy is that? Like, it's one of those things you think you talk about all the time. And I guess I mention, like, you just mention it, like, as a side note, oh, you know, that parable, or, like, I've talked about it in, in schools and things, but uh, it has been 10 years since I did it. It was at a Camp Pell. It was the last time. That's how long ago it was. Um, so that's crazy. So I am going to preach from the parable of the prodigal son, because uh, turns out I've had some new ideas about this in the last decade, uh, and I'd love to share them with you. Yes, I love to share heresy. That, thanks for that. I did pay up the worship, so I deserve that. Um, the parable of the prodigal son. So we're going to be in the book of Luke, uh, in chapter 15. From We're going to start in verse 11 onwards. It says, Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. And so he divided his property between them. And not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. Now, obviously, like when we look at parables, our custom as a community is to say, who are the key people? Who is it being spoken to? Uh, Who is Jesus trying to say something to or about? Uh, So in this context, there is, you know, there are Pharisees listening, there are teachers of the law listening, and there are Uh, his disciples and other regular folk. Uh, So obviously in this story, the character of God, though, is represented by the Father. I don't think anyone would dispute that. Uh, I've read a lot of commentaries on this. Everyone agrees that the Father is some representation of God. And even in this very first kind of three verses here, it's really clear that God doesn't force us, or the Father doesn't force the Son to have relationship with him. He doesn't force uh, the son to behave in a certain way. He invites the son to relationship, but he doesn't coerce or manipulate uh, manipulate or make demands. Uh, Yet despite this example that we see from the father who represents God towards the son who he has intimate relationship with, despite this, in churches, we frequently see people trying to control other people's behavior and trying to make them do relationship in a certain way and trying to fit into a certain box in order to be welcome. Uh, in fact, controlling behavior for some areas of the church, that's like their entire mandate. They think that they have a God-given call to control their parishioners' behavior. Uh, and if they are really, really, um, you know, I'll find a polite way to say it. Uh, if they're thinking really big, then they think, well, maybe controlling uh, the behavior of perhaps my wife or the behavior of my children or my church community, that's not enough. I want to behave, control the behavior of everyone who's not here. So they lobby and make attempts to legislate. And they think if we could just get everyone to behave the right way, then something great would happen in our nation. Or if you're a complete nutter, if we could just get everyone to behave the right way, then maybe the end will come and everyone who doesn't behave will get destroyed. But it's just not what I see from the father in this story. And it's pretty standard to see Christians, and in my notes here I've said, lobbying the government to legislate morality in a secular world using fear-based discipleship and inspirational guilt. I like that. Uh, which is teaching that makes you feel really bad in the hope 
that you won't just be convicted. You'll be really deeply condemned and really feel guilty and then change your behavior to conform to what we think is acceptable. But God doesn't do that. From the very beginning, we see God in the garden with Adam and Eve and he says, hey guys, there's all this good stuff that you can do, but don't touch that tree. And they choose to touch that tree. God let them do it. Don't, you can't tell me that God was like, um, that God was, you know, absent and that he didn't know that what was going on. He didn't know that the serpent was there manipulating them. And he didn't know that Adam and Eve were going to eat from the, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God knew what was going on and God did not say to them, well, now that I can see your misbehavior, I'm going to control your behavior. I'm going to stop you from doing that. No, you see, God gives us free will to choose. He allows us to make that decision for ourselves. So the idea that we should manipulate or cajole or coerce people to behave a certain way is so unlike God. He gives people that freedom. The son allows, uh, sorry, the father allows the son to make his own choice. And then the son, um, the son leaves. He takes the inheritance and he leaves. Now, like this is a, one of those cases where the son decided that he wanted to live wildly and disobey the father and live in a way that was inconsistent with the father's house. So the son chose to leave. Uh, pastorally, though, you, occasionally you find uh, you have a problem where people, people who want to behave in a way which is really inconsistent with what the father wants, but they don't want to leave either. So you end up with this situation, uh, and, and like a lot of places they call it church discipline, where you're like, mm, I don't know what to do about that. And I have a really simple policy when it comes to making attempts to control people's behavior. And that is, if your behavior isn't damaging community, it's really none of our business. If you have a, a, a challenge or something you're facing in your life, but it doesn't stop someone else from connecting with God, it doesn't stop someone else from seeking the Father, then it's our job to encourage and support you wherever you're at, whatever is going on in your life, and to not condemn or, can, or kick you out or harass you. Because sometimes you get a situation where people are like, well, actually, I don't like what that guy over the other side of the room is doing. Um, you should do something about that. And I'm like, well, what that guy on the other side of the room is doing isn't actually causing you any problems. Um, so I'm going to encourage that person to seek God, and I'm going to love them and support them and honor them, but it's none of my business to be kicking them out until it causes a problem for community. In fact, when I look at the Ten Commandments and then I look at all of the teaching, um, you know, when Jesus summates that, he says, love God, love others. The whole, all of the rules that we find that we still hold true to, or all the rules we find even in the Old Testament and Ten Commandments are about relationship. They're saying, don't hurt each other. Don't mess things up for each other. Don't get in the way of other people knowing God and seeking God and finding God. So I don't have a policy on excommunication. I don't excommunicate people from my life uh, or my family or our community. What I do is I have healthy boundaries around my life and my family and our community. And if people don't want to, um, if they don't want to honour those boundaries, then I will enforce those boundaries. So there are times where people's behaviour in relationship with me, there are sometimes people are pretty mean to me. Uh, so I, I exercise the boundary that I have to say, well, people aren't allowed to treat me like that. And the same is true. If I think someone is um, uh, behaving in a way that is not kind towards my family, then I can say, well, I have a boundary. You know, I do that. And the same is true for the White House residents and the same is true for the White House community. Um, we we want to be safe together. But in this case, the younger son said, I want to behave in a way that's dangerous 
and behave in a way that's unruly. Um, and so he left. In fact, it was worse than that. He said, Dad, I wish you were dead. I want all the money that is due to me on your death, and I want it now. You suck, Dad. Give me all of my inheritance. I'm leaving um, up yours. I wish you were dead, and he, and he leaves. And it's not a holiday. He collects all his stuff. He says, I don't want any of your crap. I don't want your rules. I don't want to do what you say. I don't want to go to bed at that time. Um, I don't want to do the washing up. Yeah, a little personal there. Um, I don't want to turn my Kindle off. I don't know. Uh, I'm leaving. I don't know if you have kids old enough to, to leave home yet. Um, Ari's never, never got as far as like the end of the driveway. I think she gets to the end of the driveway and realizes she's hungry. Uh, so that's as far as her rage has ever got. Um, so the son leaves. And here's, here's my big controversial learning for you. That's the wrath of God on the son. The wrath of God on the son is that the father allows him to leave. And now the son is absent from the father. See, the wrath of, God, wrath of God is not him coming in and spanking you. It's not the wrath of God is not God coming in and saying, I curse you or I destroy you or I obliterate you or I will. will. That's not the wrath of God. The wrath of God is when he steps back and allows you to get what you deserve. He allows you to suffer the consequence of your own choices. It's the natural consequence of the son's choices that mess him up now. And that, that is how the Bible frames the wrath of God. In Psalms 89, 46, it says, How long, Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? See, when the, the Israelites are talking about God's wrath, it's because he's disappeared. He's not there anymore. Now, they perceive God as being angry and aggressive and whatever, but they've left God. He's not left them. Adam and Eve chose to walk away from, from God's truth and God's love and God's uh, guidance. God didn't walk away from them. And the son has left the father's house. It's his choice to do that. So the wrath is the absence of God's presence and God's love and God's support and God's kindness and God's provision. It's not him being angry and wanting to smite. In Isaiah 54, 8, it says, In a surge of anger, I hid my face from you for a moment. But with everlasting kindness, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. See, God's wrath is when he turns away. It's when he goes away from us. It's not when he steps in to, to do something awful to us. In Deuteronomy 31, 17, 18, it says, And in that day, I will become angry with them. And this is how it defines that anger. And forsake them. I will hide my face from them and they will be destroyed. Not I will step in because I'm frustrated with them and I will destroy them. But rather God says, in my anger, I step back. What it is, is this is the language of the Israelite people is that God is angry. But really, even in the flood account, we see that God is grieved. God is sad. God is like the, the father. Remember, Jesus is the truest representation of the father. He is the exact representation of the father's being. And he tells a story about the nature of God and God is there desperately wanting the son not to leave, but the son leaves anyway. The son is now hidden from the father's presence. I will hide my face from them and they will be destroyed and many disasters and calamities will come on them. And in that day they will ask, have not these disasters come on us because God, our God is not with us. 
And I will certainly hide my face in that day because of all their wickedness in turning to other gods. You see, God steps back and he allows us to get what we deserve. And that's, that's wrath. When Jesus is on the cross and he experiences the wrath of God, it's not God saying, I'm so angry at sin, I have to kill someone, anyone. I'm so furious. I'm so despicably you know, messed up about the sin of all these people. Who can I kill to make myself feel better? That is not what God's like. The wrath that, that Jesus experiences on the cross, the forsaking, oh, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? Is that God has stepped back and the experience and the condemnation and the death that we deserve, the punishment that we deserve, because the wages of sin is death. It's not because God wants to kill us. It's because sin corrupts and destroys us. And on the cross, Jesus takes all of that and he dies with all of that and it's gone. But he experiences that wrath as a separation from God. But it's not from an angry God. It's from a loving father who is desperate for the son to come home. When we willfully walk away from God, we become, he becomes hidden from us. And God's wrath is not him stepping in. It's him stepping away. Or rather, it's when we step away. It's when we walk away like a prodigal son. God's wrath is the natural consequence of our choices when we fall short of the purpose that he designs us for. The purpose of being his image bearers on the earth. I have a quote here that I want to read from a guy named Brian Zand, who I really, I really like. Um, he says, For eons, human beings conjured and internalized a monstrous vision of God. Every flood, storm, earthquake and plague was interpreted as the contrivances of a vindictive God. Calamities were made a bit more bearable by attributing inexplicable disasters to the wrath of the gods. And these gods could be worshipped in dread and appeased by appropriate sacrifice and ritual. But these capricious gods could never be truly loved. Only love begets love. So across the ages, the religious imagination of humankind was haunted by monstrous gods. And if monotheism takes hold, the monstrous gods are absorbed into a single monster god or at least a God with a monstrous side. But at the cross, we find the death of the monster God. And by this, I mean, it is at the cross of Christ that our wrong idea of God as a vengeful monster finally dies. Among the many meanings of the cross is this one. In the crucified body of Jesus, we see the death of our mistaken image of God. God is not a monster. God does not have a monstrous side. God is whom we find in the word made flesh. When Jesus dies, he does not evoke revenge. Instead, he confers forgiveness. Jesus does this for one profound reason. This is what God is like. But after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to, the citizen, uh, to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. And he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. You see, eventually life without the father became life without purpose. And life without the father brought to him an emptiness, not just in his belly, but in his soul. It brought to him a bondage and a slavery to the, the people that he worked for and a bondage and a slavery to his base desires. And then it brought to him humiliation as a Jew, to, to associate with pigs and to desire to eat the pig's food. It brought to him deep humiliation. 
And the same is true for us. We think that life without God, there are, we've all had moments where we've either given into it or, or, or thought maybe just for a moment that that wild living would be a bit better. Or we thought, well, it looks a little bit fun. Or even we might look back and think, well, I was always really well behaved. I wish that I hadn't been so well behaved. You know, I wish I'd had that season where I sowed my wild oats or I, I did those bad things. Or um, We're like that because inside our nature, we question God. We look at the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and we think it looks pretty good. Maybe I'll just have one little taste. We believe the lie that there, it is better to live the way the world tells us to live. And to desire the things that the world desires. You see, and the first thing that this son did when he falls on hard times, when he's out of money, when nothing's going good for him, he turns to a citizen of that nation and he says, can I work with your pigs? Can I debase myself? He tries to make it better in his own strength. He tries to fix the problem with his own capacity. He seeks out people instead of his father. And we do this. We run to things trying to, to medicate and, and fix and, and pacify the emptiness that we feel. I don't know, like you might run to, a, to chocolate or alcohol or sex or Netflix. Anyone? Online gaming, if you're particularly debased. Um, we're empty, but we're not quite broken, right? We can still kind of fill ourselves up with nonsense. First comes the emptiness. And then comes a bondage to the vices that help us to manage. We can't go to sleep without watching television. We can't manage without um, the, the things in our life. We become slaves to the worldly things. And then finally, humiliation. Finally, we get to a place where we're like, actually, I know that I should be living differently. We, we feel ashamed of that. We don't want anyone to know how much we watch Netflix or how much we um, look at pornography or how much we uh, are drinking or how much we are just selfish and greedy or how much we aren't working when we're actually at work or how much we, we, we become so used to the vices that we used to manage and then we realise and we are humiliated and ashamed. And when he came to his senses... Oh, buddy. <laughs> He's very sad. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. He has a change of heart where he realizes the choices I'm making, the life that I'm living is, it needs to change. And he has a change of mind where he says, everything I have done was wrong. I changed my opinion about that. The fruit on that tree, whilst delicious, definitely made me die. You, see, you don't even have to think, you know, just because the, like, the fruit is good. God made lots of fruit. He made all sorts of fruit that you're meant to enjoy. And often the thing that we crave, the desire of our heart that we crave that is sinful is just a, a broken version of something beautiful that God wants us to have anyway. Am I yelling too much, Parker? Yeah. <laughs> Am I scaring you, buddy? No, it's not you. It's He's used to me yelling, I think. He had a change of heart and he had a change of mind and he had a change in his lifestyle. He got up from where he was and he said, I am going to turn around and walk back home. That's what repentance looks like. 
Repentance is not someone uh, manipulating you and guilting you and making you feel bad about that deep, dark sin in your life. Repentance is you coming to a place where you say, this is bad and I need to change and I want to go home to my father. Repentance is turning from what we've done, not out of fear or condemnation, but turning because we want to go back to, to God. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. When the son is a long way off, the, the father has got his binoculars out and he's like sitting on the balcony with his binoculars. Every day he wakes up and he thinks, I hope my son comes home. And when he is a long way off, the father runs to the son. This is the only picture of God in the Bible where he's in a hurry. Normally, God takes a really long time to do something immediately. But in this case, God is in a hurry. And he runs to the son. And the son is busy trying to apologize. The son is busy trying to say, oh, I'm so terrible and I did this and I did... It just, this is what's pouring out of, the, out of the son. And the father is just like, I don't care about where you've been or what you've done. That's not important to me. Bring a robe and put it on my son and bring sandals and put them on his feet. He is lost, but is, he was lost, but now he is found. You see, we are so caught up about the sin in our lives. We think it's such a big deal. When they ate from the fruit in the garden, they hid and they were naked and ashamed and they were worried about what God would say. But really, God is desperate for us to come home and we are much more hung up about our sin than he is. Jesus died once and for all and sat down at the right hand of the Father. Sin is dealt with and done. The consequences of death and punishment and all of that is gone. And now it is just us seeking the Father because he loves us and runs to us and desires to, to make us his son again and to give us authority again. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. The father wasn't worried that he stank like pigs. The father wanted to restore the son to where he had been before. And he didn't say, well, I'll put you um, on a 10-week program and if you behave, I'll let you back in. He just said, this is my son, let's party. But meanwhile, the other son was in the field and when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing and so he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. And the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. See, the prodigal has returned from his wild living. And the older brother has, has heard that he's come. And the older brother, he says, he answers his father, look, all these years I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. You never 
gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property and with prostitutes comes home, you kill a fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and have everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This son of yours, not my brother, this son of yours, who's been off with, not while living, with prostitutes and with, he tells, he, he shares what's inside of his heart. If I left with the inheritance, I know what I'd be spending the money on. He presumes and he condemns You know what's interesting about this is the older brother is exactly like what a lot of Christians think God is like. The older brother is exactly how a lot of people see the father. They think that sinners, when they come back, they need to lie on the floor and repent and recant and then then God will punish them for their wickedness. And you know what? You better list off all of the sins you did whilst you were gone because you can't truly repent until I know all of the gory details about what you did. We think that God is like the older brother. But he's not. God is the father. The father just wants to say, this is fantastic that he's home. So the the challenge for us, because most of us are not prodigals. Most of us are older brothers. We're in the father's house is to not, when we see a prodigal come home, when we see a new person come in, say to them, well, you need to repent and be saved. They've already been saved. If they're here, they're probably already on that journey to God. Jesus has already dealt with that sin. What we need to do is celebrate that they were lost and are now found. But the Pharisees were like this older brother. So Jesus tells this story and the whole way through, they're probably thinking that they're somehow a good guy in this story. And then they're they're the brother that's been in the temple, that's done all the right things. Yeah. Well, they didn't like what Jesus had to say, that's for sure. It's terribly sad um, when our evangelistic message is like the older brother, not like the father. When our evangelistic message is, you have been with prostitutes and I think you should be the lowest of the low. But the older brother would have made him serve as a servant. The older brother would have made him a public spectacle. But our evangelistic message should be like the father. Come and here is a robe and here are the sandals and let's party. Our evangelistic message should be like the father. God's wrath is not him being like the older brother. It's his grief that his sons and daughters are not with him. That they are absent from him. But the miracle in this story is, is that the, the father, he ran to the older, sorry, to the younger son, but he also runs to the older one. The older one's having a, a cranky hissy fit out the back and it says the father goes to him. The father, and this culturally, this is absurd, but the father seeks out the rude and difficult older brother. And he pleads with him. And says, come and join the party. Come, we have to celebrate. You have everything of mine all the time. And please come celebrate with us because your brother was lost and is found. You see, the father is willing to come to us as well as the other. It's his grace, that the grace that we see in the father here that Jesus is expressing, that there is always room at the party for more.
God wants us to care about the prodigal. God wants us to see him like the father in this story, not like the older brother. He wants us to be compassionate and kind and waiting. And you know what? I think that, that the older brother in this story should have gone and found the younger brother. The older brother should have gone out and said, come home. We love you. Come home. The older brother should have sought out the younger brother. But instead, he grew bitter and angry. This, this story of the prodigal son is in a group of, of stories. There are three stories. And the first one is about a lost sheep and how a shepherd goes and finds the lost sheep because he loves the sheep and he's desperate to, to celebrate when he gets the sheep back. And then the second story is about a woman who loses her coin and then she finds her coin. This is a story I identify with greatly. Losing something is, is very bad. I do not cope. I um, find I Yeah, yeah, I get that one. That's the one I identify with deeply. Every couch in this room has had the cushions pulled off a hundred times by me because my children lose things constantly. My happy place, I have a little shed with a lock on it. No one can put things where they're not meant to be. That's my happy place. Open it. Everything's where it's meant to be. Nothing is lost. And she finds the coin. She sweeps under every single thing and she finds the coin and she brings her friends around and they celebrate. And then we have this father who loves for his, his, he loves his son and desires that his son would come home. Heavenly Father, I, I thank you that you love us. That you love us, that it's not complicated and there's no ridiculous formula or hoops or or a process or creedal thing. It's, it's really simple. You love us and you want us to be with you. And God, I pray you would just give us that simplicity of heart. That our evangelistic message would be, there is a father who loves you and desires to party with you. That our evangelistic message would be one of grace and compassion and hope, not one of fear or guilt or condemnation. And I pray that as a community, we would welcome people as long lost sons and daughters that we wouldn't cajole or manipulate or coerce people or tell them they have to live a particular way uh, in order to fit in our box. But we would just say, here is a robe and, and here are some sandals and, and in the Father's house, we'll figure everything else out. I pray that we would not be like the older brother, that we wouldn't harbour resentment or bitterness or we wouldn't be sitting in, in the Father's house just thinking about what we would squander. Our, 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 um, our money on if we, if we did that. Heavenly Father, I pray you would bring to mind the, the lost children that you would have us seek out and offer grace and mercy to and compassion to. And Lord, we just we thank you that you are a, a great father. And that you're not angry. That you love us. You sent your son to die on a cross to deal with the consequence of sin. That it was never because you hated us or wanted to destroy us. It was always because you loved us and wanted relationship with us. 
So God, I pray right now as people sit here, I pray that they would be able to see you in their mind's eye and, and, and come to you and receive that, that, um, that gown and to receive those sandals and to receive that ring on their finger and know that they are loved and forgiven and that they are no longer lost, but they are found and that they are home. I pray right now, Lord, that we would experience that sense of, of being home. And that we might have that repentance in our heart. We might want to just get it all out. But you're just like, you know what? I just want to love you and hold you and celebrate that you are here. Beloved, you are here. God, may we forgive like you forgive. May we embrace like you embrace. Jesus' name. Amen.